The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. How do you feel about your acquittal, Mr. Marucci? Makes me proud to live in this great country where justice is still served. Gambling ready to be outlawed on Earth. Will the Givenito Syndicate engender a consortium to perpetuate a new gambling coalition on the moon? Will the what do what to the what? Speak English, sweetheart. Will you and the other major organized crime figures on Earth? Oh, organized crime? I don't know nobody in organized crime. <laughs> <laughs> Roland. Yes, yeah, Pluto. Hey, look, man, I gotta get to far side. Yeah, I need you to get me a spacesuit. Make that two spacesuits, one for a female, about five foot seven. Yeah, I'll tell you when I get there. So, this is the Garden of Paradise. My, my. Hey, you know what? If this is too glitzy for you, tomorrow we can get a room across the street at the Garden of Eden. They got a bathroom on every floor. I hate the moon. Hey, you know why mooners can't stand earthlings? You think everything back Earth is better and you can't stop talking about it. I went back Earth once and the air smelled funny. Sneezing all the time and rained every day and bugs everywhere. In fact, you know the only thing I liked about it? You could see the moon at night? Bingo. So how long does the night last up here? Two weeks. That's so depressing. Oh, it's nice. Nice. It gets nice. Look at this. When I was a little boy, I used to come out here with Roland. I used to just look up at the stars and count them and dream about what was out there. I never heard such drivel in my life. Hey, James, what kind of refreshments you got back here? Uh, dreadfully sorry, sir. We weren't expecting anyone. Hey, I don't want to hear that. I know you got something. You gonna make me house it? Oh, champagne and caviar. Don't touch those. They're for guests. James, James, we are guests. God, he's going to get a drunk and have his way with her. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 23rd, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western, where we'll be with you from now till noon. Well, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color. Color it to black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Well, sounds like Eddie Murphy's doing on the moon what Bill Cosby keeps getting accused of down here on Earth. But no, we won't be discussing Bill Cosby this week because nothing has changed on this story regardless of the release of the court documents by the New York Times last week. We will, however, revisit that issue and the New York Times spin on an upcoming show. Now, my understanding is that the Adventures of Pluto Nash, from which our opening scene was selected this week, was among the largest theater money losers in history, even though it's a very enjoyable and entertaining movie. They simply, I think, spent too much money on the special effects for the kind of movie it was. You know, it had big-name stars, Alec Baldwin, Eddie Murphy, John Cleese, among, among them. Just amazing. For today, however, it is difficult for anyone who appreciates the value and significance of last week's arrival at Pluto by the New Horizons spacecraft to not talk about it in a forum such as this. 
Last week I suggested that we'd continue our discussion on planet Pluto at some time in the future when we would have some more useful information on the planet, though I didn't think that future would come as soon as now today. It appears that the stars and planets have all aligned to force the situation, given a number of events and anniversaries and discoveries recently you know, put in the public's focus all on astronomical issues. Now, the planets I have in mind include mainly Earth, the Moon, the Sun, and Pluto. And yes, there was a time when all of those heavenly bodies were considered planets. And simply the definition of planet is one of our major focuses today. And of course, this past Monday was the 46th anniversary of man landing on the moon in 1969, an event which I was around to witness live on television as it was happening. But that anniversary sure has a lot to compete with lately, not the least of which was last week's incredible flyby of Pluto. And yes, Virginia, man did land on the moon in 1969, despite all of the silly conspiracy theories to suggest otherwise out there. Not only did Russia, China, and India confirm the original communication signals from the moon at the time, but they've since photographed evidence of the landing site in recent years, etc., etc. So, before we go into orbit on all of these astronomical topics, events, and down-to-earth issues, don't forget, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Now, it's been a long time since the moon itself was discussed on this show. Um, way back in 2010 was the last time we discussed it. And at that time, we were talking about Margaret Atwood and, and her moon landing conspiracy. And uh, we were just joking about, have we been mooned, me and Robert. Before that, we discussed the moon on our, sh our 113th show back in July 23rd, 2009. And uh, at that time, we were talking about exoplanets. That's a whole field that we're not going to talk about today. But that is an issue that uh, was big. We've, we've discovered hundreds and hundreds of planets outside of our solar system. And of course, as we demonstrated with our opener on last week's show, we heard the Big Bang Theory gang bounce a, a laser beam off the instruments left on the moon by the astronauts, simply as one piece of proof that this stuff actually existed. And of course, Robert and I already debunked any moon landing conspiracy theories back on our uh, October 7th, 2010 show. But despite the great and unprecedented accomplishment of landing a man on the moon and returning him to Earth, the moon itself has become far less interesting than many of the celestial bodies much further than our own immediate celestial neighborhood. For simple observation purposes, of course, one advantage that the moon has over other celestial bodies is that we only have to look straight up into the sky and we can see the thing, you know. What is in many ways another planet, you know, hanging right up there in the sky above us. The moon's gravitational field is what causes the tides on Earth, a process that is vital to many forms of life on this planet. Like all celestial bodies in orbit around another celestial body, the distance between them varies at different points in their orbit. Apparently when Earth's moon, Luna, lines up with the Earth and Sun at a specific point in its orbit, called a lunar perigee, it's also called a supermoon. In the moon's orbit around us, of course, it moves further away from and closer to the Earth by quite a degree. 
at its furthest from the from the Earth, the apogee, the moon is uh, when the moon is in its orbit. It's at about four hundred and five thousand six hundred and ninety-six kilometers away. Not not six hundred and ninety-five, six hundred ninety-six. That's how close they can measure it. And when closest to us at the perigee, perigee, it's about forty thousand clo- uh, kilometers closer at three hundred and sixty-three one o four. Now, when the moon is at that closest point, and when the moon lines up with the Earth and, and the Sun in a near straight line, that phenomenon is referred to as a supermoon. When the moon actually appears, 14% larger and 30% brighter than at any other time. And apparently the next supermoon will occur during the full moon of September 28th of this year, 2015, about two months away, and will be 11 miles closer even than last year's closest August 10th supermoon at 221,765 miles. Yes, I know I'm mixing miles and kilometers, but that's what they do in the articles too. And of course, this alignment, by the way, also causes the largest rise in tides. Now, over the course of today's show, I plan to take a look at the arrival of the New Horizons at Pluto, then at the planned manned one-way mission to Mars. It sounds a little suicidal to me, if you ask me. But, you know, Mars attracts. And then we'll be be returning back to Earth, where a raging debate has arisen over the proper classification of Pluto. Is Pluto a planet, or is it not? At first a glance, there's almost a humorous irony in the observation that while on the one hand, scientists and astronomers are accomplishing tasks and discovering phenomenon in our universe never before seen with amazing technology, and while on the other hand, they're still arguing about the definition of a planet. <laughs> it does seem a bit funny, but it's no laughing matter. After all, the sun itself was once considered to be a planet, and not out of ignorance or stupidity, but because of the application of the definition of planet at that time. It's a fascinating debate and history that we'll be taking a look at in the final quarter of our hour today. Now, whether or not Pluto should be categorized as a planet is one such debate over definition, while at the same time, the people who are arguing about this issue are providing us with images uh, you know, of Pluto that have never been seen by human eyes before, that they can do. Well, defining what a planet is, that seems to be really tough. We'll be saving our discussion on that incredibly fascinating epistemological debate, really, and a very critical debate for the last quarter of the show. But between now and then, I personally plan to continue using the word planet when referring to Pluto. And also during the course of the show today, we'll be uh, revealing many of the factors that have to be considered in arriving at any conclusions on the debate, whichever way you might decide to fall on it. Uh, This is not a life and death issue, but it certainly is a fascinating one. I think I've at least zeroed in on what the essential problem underlying the debate is, but a true resolution really lies within the proper disciplines who study such things as planets. But first, some other very interesting developments and discoveries in the astronomical field that have occurred over the past 12 or 24 months or so. I actually found some time to get around to sorting my piles of physical newspaper clippings that I collect in boxes over a given time period and sorting them into their appropriate subject and topic files. And what accumulated in my astronomy and science folder was really quite incredible. So I thought, given our broader theme today, that I'd share a few of the items with you as far as time allows. If you recall, last week we talked about space-time and the relativity of time to the speed one travels, the speed of light, etc. Well, sure enough, as if to demonstrate that principle in spades, 
I ran across a March 6th article of this year, 2015, in the National Post, originally from the New York Times that was written by Dennis Overby. The headline, Star Scene Exploding Over and Over Again. It was subheading Einsteinian Oddity. Of course, my first thought was, well, how can a star explode more than once? Which, of course, was a stupid question, (laughs) since it logically defies everything we know about the laws of causality. But no, there was a very reasonable and logical reason uh, for this star to be seen exploding over and over again. Turns out it's another astronomical first, and the writer explains, and this is the article, it's Groundhog Day in the Cosmos. In the 1993 Bill Murray movie, a weatherman relives the same day over and over again. Now, astronomers using the Hubble Space Telescope say they've been watching the same star repeatedly blow itself to smithereens in a supernova explosion thanks to a trick of Einsteinian optics. The star exploded more than 9 billion years ago on the other side of the universe. Light rays from the star have been bent and magnified by the gravity of an intervening cluster of galaxies so that multiple images of it appear. Four of them, the galaxies, are arranged in a tight formation known as an Einstein cross surrounding one of the galaxies. Since each light ray follows a different path from the star to here, each image in the cross represents a slightly different moment in the supernova explosion. This is the first time astronomers have been able to see the same explosion repeatedly. Now get this in terms of the time differential in observation. The explosion is expected to appear again in another part of the sky sometime in the next 10 years. <laughs> Think about that. You know, at the speed of light, that's quite a detour for one stream of light to take versus the other ones that have already been observed. Uh, I was sort of astounded, said Patrick Kelly of the University of California, Berkeley, who discovered the supernova images in data collected by the Space Telescope in November. I was not expecting anything like that at all, and he's the lead author of a report describing the the whole phenomenon. Timing the delays between its appearance, he explained, um, will allow astronomers to refine measurements of how fast the universe is expanding and to map the mysterious dark matter that supplies the bulk of the mass and gravitational oomph of the universe. This year marks a century since Albert Einstein's greatest achievement, the general theory of relativity, which transformed our understanding of space, time, and gravity. One consequence of this was that even light rays could be bent by gravity and follow a curved path around massive objects like the sun. In effect, space itself could become a telescope. And how it works depends on how the stars are aligned. Astronomers have learned how to use entire galaxies and galaxy clusters as telescopes to see fainter objects beyond them that would otherwise be lost in the fog of time. So in other words, the light from the supernova explosion in question, the light that won't get here for another 10 years, was bent going around a cluster of galaxies on its way to Earth. And that curvature is so great that it takes this path of light that much more time to get here than the other paths already observed. So that's a very interesting item. And just in in the way of jogging our memory, too, uh, in case you've already forgotten about it or missed the event entirely, you know, it was just this past November that the European Space Agency's uh, Rosetta spacecraft landed a robot on the face of a comet. And that comet, uh, relatively, was only half a billion kilometers from Earth, but uh, that's another first. And uh, then there's another interesting item here. This one's from uh, 
John Robson, writer John Robson, in a chilling astronomical warning uh, just a few week, weeks ago on July 3rd in the National Post, he wrote a piece with the heading, Live by the Asteroid, Die by the Asteroid, wherein he speculated on the very real danger of an asteroid hitting Earth and the consequences that that might cause. And he writes, no one worried about, about asteroids in the 19th century because no one knew about them, but now we do. How big is the danger? NBC's story on Asteroid Day, and basically, uh, from what I understand, uh, June 30th was Asteroid Day, and the people who celebrated went around, uh, you know, um, wearing metal hat, metal hats, or uh, <laughs> what do you call, what do you call it? You know, uh, uh, just just silly stuff, anyway. And uh, but that apparently, that story by NBC noted with curious complacency, is how he puts it that based on a statistical analysis, NASA says it found more than 90% of the estimated 981 asteroids a kilometer or more wide capable of annihilating civilization. So that leaves nearly 10% lurking undetected. Plus, NASA hasn't found 90% of those over 140 meters wide, let alone the hundreds of thousands of smaller ones still capable of smashing a city. Even the comparative pebble that detonated over uh, Tunguska in Siberia in 1908, a mere 40 meters wide, flattened an area as big as Tokyo. And he speculates, what if it had hit Tokyo? And one off southern New Zealand in 1443 AD created a tsunami that was over 200 meters high, end quote. Now, Robson's essay has a subheading that reads, I got, I got a kick out of this. It would be quite bad if a really major piece of rock slammed into the earth and wiped out civilization, end quote. And I'm sitting there, uh, quite bad? <laughs> quite bad? <laughs> quite bad is when the power goes off for an hour or two. But wiping out civilization, uh, I think quite bad requires someone to appreciate that after the quite bad event. There wouldn't be anyone left to even make that comment. Gee, that was quite bad. <laughs> Understatement of 2015. And then finally, in the, in the miscellaneous astro, astro, astronomy department here, astronomers report finding earliest stars. This is from the National Post of June 18th, just this past by Dennis Overby, again originating from the New York Times, where it says that astronomers said they had discovered a lost generation of monster stars that ushered light into the universe after the Big Bang and jump-started the creation of the elements needed for planets and life before disappearing forever. An international crew of astronomers led by David Sobral of the University of Lisbon, Portugal, and the Leiden Observ Observatory in the Netherlands said they had spotted the signature of these first-generation stars in a recently discovered galaxy that existed when the universe was only about 800 million years old. The galaxy known as CR7, which was named after Portuguese soccer player uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, is three times as luminous as any previously found from that time, they said. Within it is a bright blue cloud that seems to contain only hydrogen and helium, the hallmark of our hypothesized starry ancestors, the source of the atoms in our blood and bones. Modern stars, like the Sun, with abundances of so-called metals, anything heavier than helium, are now called Population 1, mainly because they were first known, and they mostly inhabit the spiral arms and younger parts of galaxies like the Milky Way, which is our galaxy, by the way. 
In the middle of the 20th century, however, the astronomer Walter Bodd noticed that the stars in the older parts of the galaxy, like its core or globular clusters, are older and have fewer metals. He called them population two. The advent of the Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe forced astronomers to realize that the first stars must have had no metals at all, and those are now known as population three. Stars of both population two and three are probably present in CR7, Sobral and his team report, end quote. Now, you know, <clears throat> again, that categorization system, population one, two, and three, seems a little primitive to me and could present a host of categorization problems in the future that might be quite similar to the crisis facing astronomers over defining Pluto as a planet. I just can't help feel that a lot of what I just read, too, belongs in that same epistemological mess that I was talking about last week on the whole topic of space-time. The language is just a bit too unclear and muddled to be able to properly grasp some of the things they're trying to describe. I mean, lost generation of monster stars, not exactly helpful in a scientific sense. So now let's turn our attention to what has already been learned about Pluto, thanks to the New Horizons mission. Hosted by Dan Riskin, the following audio bites were selected from Discovery Channel's um, July 15th broadcast, Pluto, First Encounter. And they really helped to paint a picture of both the event of the Pluto mission and of Pluto itself. Let's listen in. This crowd is going crazy, and look at these images. This is the surface of Pluto, a place that until now we've only been able to imagine. And these images were just taken by an incredible little spacecraft. We did it. It truly is once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I'm Dan Risk, and I'm here at Mission Central in Laurel, Maryland, where the energy has been non-stop. After a long journey, we finally arrived, and this team could not be happier to see this huge rocket uh, launching our little spacecraft on the top. Weighs about a thousand pounds, we get a million pounds of thrust. And boom, that rocket's up and gone and on its way. Let's talk about speed. 16,000 meters per second at 36,000 miles per hour. Fastest thing ever launched from the Earth. 45 minutes, it's over the Indian Ocean. Nine hours later, we'd already crossed the orbit of the moon. This is the fastest spacecraft ever to leave the Earth. We're traveling so fast that we would go from LA to New York in five minutes, and we do that 24-7 for nine and a half years. That's what it takes to get to Pluto. The furthest planetary destination ever attempted to the outer edges of the solar system. A tiny spacecraft hurtling through space at epic speeds, facing unknown dangers. One shot to capture this planet up close with high-resolution cameras for the very first time. This exploration is the pivotal piece in coming to understand how our solar system came to be and to look like it is. It gives us so many clues about where the solar system came from, how it got to be here, that you just can't pass up an opportunity to study a place like that.
but never really fit into the family of planets from day one. It was always a much smaller object than the four giant planets or the four interterrestrial planets. It's small and round. In fact, six Plutos could fit on Earth. And it's been classified as a dwarf planet. A pretty new category for the rocky ice spheres who aren't hefty enough to clear what floats around them. Dwarf planets are planets too, and there are really more dwarf planets in the solar system than there are, quote, regular planets. Pluto lives on the edge of the solar system. The draw for Pluto is the concept of the frontier. Pluto was just the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole family of objects out beyond Neptune's orbit in a region called the Kuiper Belt. That's a region that we haven't explored, and it turns out by studying the small bodies of the solar system, they give us a window back in time to what the solar system was like when it first formed, when the planets first came together. It's freezing. And the surface of Pluto is only about 400 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. There's no place on Earth that's anything like that. You'd feel weightless. The gravity is less than half of what they experienced on the moon. All right, this is a neat way to travel. Isn't it great? It's so far out that Pluto's journey around the sun takes 248 years. It hasn't even made half an orbit since its discovery in 1930. And also, instead of traveling around in a circle, it's in a highly elongated, uh, what we call an ellipse an egg-shaped orbit, which is also unusual relative to all the other objects out there. And moons. There are five. The four small ones tumble in chaos, while the biggest, Charon, faces Pluto at all times. But it's Pluto's surface and what could be lurking below that has everyone on the edge of their seats. So it's a high-stakes game that really has paid off, and for no one bigger than Alan Stern, you're the PI for this mission. So tell me, is this the Pluto you've been imagining? It's better than the Pluto that I imagined. You know, the Pluto that I imagined uh, was in a video by the National Space Society that was just released about a month ago. And we went about as far out on a ledge as we could, but the range of geological expression that we're seeing, the number of different surface units that, that, that tell us that this world as small as it is, is perhaps as complicated as the Earth or Mars is blowing our minds. What we're seeing truly is wonderful. This is an alive place. There's evidence of geological activity, smooth areas, ice mountains. It's nothing like we imagined it would be. And this is only gonna reignite that emotional debate over whether Pluto should be considered a planet. And so after 10, long years of waiting for to, to finally get there and to have this moment go by what has this experience been like for you this flyby it's been absolutely incredible um, because it was like an accelerating roller coaster the whole way as we got closer and closer we could see more and more detail and now we've captured these data sets that are going to allow us to unravel the entire history of the planet and the history of the system well, you've got a lot of work ahead of you. Congratulations you on a job well done. Thank Fantastic. You very much for the whole team. And as the data come in, we start to see the answer to the big question why Pluto? Well, why Pluto indeed? Because it is there, that's why. <laughs> if something else was there, that's where we would have sent our spacecraft. I understand the Pluto mission was accomplished for some $980 million, which sounds low to me. I mean, that's less than the amount of money wasted by the Ontario Liberal government on its various gas plant scandals. But that, that aside, um, as fast as this fastest ever spacecraft was, consider this. 
Relative to the speed of light, we're not even anywhere near any speed necessary for interstellar travel in the sense we've seen in science fiction projections. It takes 1.25 seconds for light to travel from the Earth to the Moon, or reverse, and it took nine hours for the New Horizons to reach the Moon's orbit, which is amazing in and of itself, uh, you know, 16,000 meters per second. And, of course, the other thing that they did was they increased the speed around one of the the gas giants to about 50,000 miles per hour. Fast as that is, it's still a crawl relative to the speed of light. I noticed that some of the comments made about Pluto were that it never fit into the family of planets since day one. Don't know if I buy all that. Pluto has been classified as a dwarf planet. Okay, that's a new category. Defining planets too small to clear their orbital debris around them. Don't know if that was the major consideration that I would have taken into account, but that's something we'll talk about again shortly. And uh, of course, there's a whole family of dwarf planets out in the Kuiper belt. What I found interesting was that this world, as small as it is, is everybody as complicated as Earth or Mars and reigniting that debate about whether it should be considered a planet. Another fascinating thing is they found water, ice, on the planet. The first icy world that isn't on another planet, um, uh, you know, that, that, that's totally on its own, totally away from, um, you know, uh, it's not a moon around a planet. And as someone said, this is another um, red planet. Uh, I was quite surprised, actually, and disappointed that the Free Press didn't run that picture of Pluto that appeared on page B4 of its July 15th edition on the front page, where I think it would more properly have belonged, uh, certainly as opposed to the boring coverage of the recently ended municipal inside worker strike. And surely an event and discovery of such magnitude is worthy of note on a front page of something called a newspaper. I mean, these high-definition photos were simply magnificent. Uh, both Pluto and Charon. And by the way, C-H-A-R-O-N is how you spell the other name of Charon. I've heard people pronounce it Charon, Charon, and Charon. So I'm not sure which is the correct. I've heard an equal number of pronunciations of all of those. So, And... Um, you know, I have to say one thing that the new images of Pluto reveal is that the pattern we see in our broader solar system and in the galaxies beyond is one that repeats itself on almost every scale, though not, ev not all. But within the realm of space-time, that pattern seems persistent. Gravity causes all physical objects to gravitate towards one another, and depending upon the relative speeds to each other, they'll either become one object, annihilate each other, change the direction of one another, or go into orbit around each other. So what an incredible sight to see what, in effect, looks like a little mini solar system or a mini satellite system composed of two, essentially, what appear to be twin planets, Pluto and Charon, and I have to assume that Charon was declared the moon because it always faces the same side towards Pluto. I don't know if that was the consideration or not. But in the future, you know, if you want to speculate and have some science fiction ideas, Pluto could become the site of a deep space mission. You know, it's almost a test tube laboratory of a mini solar system and far enough from the sun to open a new range of possibilities. I wonder if they'll ever build a telescope on Pluto, you know, with, a, with an orbit of 248 years. It would take several generations of observers to be able to witness all of the images that you could collect in just one orbit around, uh, you know, of Pluto around the sun. 
So uh, we'll, we'll take a quick detour to Mars after our upcoming break, but then we'll later return to a completely different discussion on the issue of Pluto, one that's entirely epistemological and not astronomical as such, even though it has astronomical consequences. But first, here's uh, the last word on the Pluto observations, and we'll be back. We've recorded the expected amount of data. Oh my God. Copy that. Looks like we have a good data record. A flawless flyby of Pluto and its moons. Hundreds of images taken at close range now streaming back to Earth. Now it's gonna take more than a year for us to get them all, but as each one rolls in, we discover more about this mysterious world. We have a healthy spacecraft. We've recorded data of the Pluto system, and we're outbound for Pluto. <laughs> It's fascinating. What we're seeing is looking really exciting from a few pixels across. Pluto becomes a real world. This is in the history books. It's certainly not a boring old rock. Pluto has finally revealed its secrets. We've opened up a new realm of the solar system. Let's put it this way, Pluto is certainly not flat. We now see mountains on Pluto. Up to 11,000 feet high. They'd stand up respectably against Rocky Mountains or other uh, significant mountain ranges here on the Earth. The bedrock that makes those mountains must be made of H2O, of water ice. Water ice is so hard at these temperatures that it could support the topography that we need to make these mountains. This is the first time we've seen an icy world that isn't orbiting a giant planet. I think it's going to send a lot of geophysicists back to the drawing boards. We thought since uh, Pluto doesn't have this huge planet next to it, they could tidally heat the interior, that it's going to be very boring. I can tell you right now that Pluto is not boring. It's clear that there are seasonal changes. We have this very bright, exotic snow. We know Pluto does have an atmosphere. It's nitrogen, just like our atmosphere here. It's the other red planet. But of course, there are many different hues of red. We're still learning what those different bright and dark spots mean, but basically they're telling us that they're probably made out of something different. We now have a name for the heart. Because it's the brightest and most prominent feature on the planet. We want to honor the discover of Pluto. We want to informally call it Tombaugh Regio for the discovery of Pluto. This is civilizations first step into this whole new region of the solar system. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Pluto is now revealed. Now we have explored all nine of the original planets. It's a great day for NASA. It's a great day for humanity. And it's not over. That spacecraft is going to continue sending data back from Pluto, and then it's going to travel out past Pluto, sending data from beyond. It's an historic moment. Well, there's this company that's attempting to establish a colony on Mars, and I applied to be among the first to go. You applied for a mission to be a colonist on another planet and couldn't be bothered to tell me? Would you have approved? Of course not. Well, based on your reaction, it looks like I made the right choice. <laughs> I really don't understand what's happening here. You know, Sheldon, at any other time, Learning that you had plans to go live on Mars would be a slow news day. But a couple of hours ago, we were getting a turtle. 
And silly as it sounds, I thought that meant something. Do you want me to withdraw my application? What I want is for us to be planning our future together. And in that future, are we on the same planet? <laughs> Dude, because I've seen people make the long distance thing. We're on the same planet! <laughs> Does that planet have to be Earth? Are you asking me to go to Mars with you? I am. Yeah, if I'm going to a barren, lifeless environment where the chances of survival are slim to none, I want you there with me. <laughs> Why don't we go back to the apartment and fill out your application? Okay. I suppose being the first people on a new planet would be incredibly exciting. Oh, I know. We could be the first to plant a flag on Mars. We could be the first to watch Mars attacks on Mars. <laughs> Hell, we could be the first to say, good Lord, what on Mars are you talking about? No. We could also be the first people to procreate on Mars. You just can't keep it in your space pants, can you? <laughs> Think about it. If we had a family there, our kids would be Martians. They would, wouldn't they? <laughs> we could give them cool Martian names, and we could teach them about Martian history, like who planted those flags, and uh, where'd that copy of Mars Attacks come from? <laughs> you know, on one level, I can see the romantic attraction that the, the planet Mars would have for many. There have been a number of great movies made about exploring Mars. One of the earliest I remember watching as a kid was Robinson Crusoe on Mars, which was really a good movie. But the reality versus the romantic allure would have to be extraordinarily sobering, to say the least. Uh, Mars One is the name given to a Dutch-run colonizing mission that's still at least a decade off, end quote, and people are actually already going through a selection process for that mission. I understand the first hundred people have generally been selected, and, and among them are four Canadians. And uh, somehow I, I just can't see a planned 2024 successful mission to colonize Mars as being in the cards right now, even though the attempt may well be made, uh, much to the uh, doubt of many people, however. Interesting article here. This was from the um, um, a paper that's gone for a while. What was that paper now? Metro News. Yeah, this is from April 30th, 2014. Hundreds of millions of kilometers, or kilometers if you prefer, on a slingshot trip around the sun. Uh, by Robson Fletcher. Uh, welcome to the Red Planet feature. He says the trip to Mars is a long one. Next to Venus, the Red Planet is the second closest to Earth, but the direct distance from here to there, or as I put it last week, from here now to there then, if you take the time factor of space-time into consideration, he says it's still measured in the tens of millions and sometimes the hundreds of millions of kilometers. That's because as Earth and Mars each make their way around the Sun, the distance between the two terrestrial planets varies widely. At its closest, Mars can be about 55 million kilometers away. At its furthest, more than 400. Earth has the inside track around the Sun orbiting every 365 days, while Mars 
Mother's Year is longer, roughly 687 days. Interestingly, one thing the article doesn't mention is, is, is how long a day is on Mars. It's almost the same as on Earth. I think it's 23 and a half hours. I think we're only out by about half an hour or so. So that wouldn't be too hard to adjust to. Now, of course, these are, they're talking about the ideal moments to launch a spacecraft to, Mar- to Mars to go from an A to B plan, but that's uh, the route that, Mar- that Mars 1 plans to use. They're using what's called a Hohmann transfer orbit in which the spacecraft leaves Earth on one side of the Sun, slingshots around the Sun, meets up with Mars on the far side of the Sun from where it began, and the entire journey spans hundreds of millions of kilometers and takes about seven months. So that's their planned route. And according to the ambitious schedule, the nonprofit foundation aims to launch unmanned spacecraft carrying equipment and robots to the Red Planet in 2018, 2020, and 2022 when they intend to send the first crew of human settlers on a one-way trip in 2024. So whether they stick to that schedule or not remains to be seen. But interestingly, I think there is a bigger issue here, and Joseph Breen in the National Post on February 28th uh, sort of summarized it almost in the, in the heading. Cosmic cabin fever. Getting to Mars isn't the hard part. It's living there. <clears throat> and he says that now that the 100-person shortlist is announced for Mars 1, including four Canadians competing for a spot on the Dutch-run colonizing mission, um, you know, he's talking about the worst case scenario, people going nuts on, you know, just from being cramped and being getting this cabin fever. And, uh, you know, in the cold blackness of space with Earth receding into a blue-green pinpoint, cramped in an airlock bubble on a one-way trip to the toxic atmosphere of a desert planet, uh, you could uh, take leave of your senses. And apparently this happens more often than we are told with uh, issues of crewmates and people in space. And, um, you know, outright mental illness, he says, has actually already been documented in astronauts in mid-flight, and it manifests itself in grudges, feuds, factions, jealousies, resentment, and, quote, simple human awfulness. And he says, if there's anything you can predict about what will happen to people in space is that there will be conflict for sure, said Jordan Bim, a NASA research fellow at York University in, um, in Toronto. Now, he says missions to the International Space Station have typically lasted six months or so, and psychological research has shown over time negative feelings get displaced onto mission control, breeding resentment, people get irritable, they get, you know, make, make more mistakes, and they get cabin fever on a cosmic scale. One study documented psychological closing among astronauts who picked favorites among the mission controllers and perceived others as opponents. The longest time in space so far was recorded by a Russian doctor, Valery Polyakov, who was on the Russian Mir for more than 437 days. But even that is nothing compared to what these 100 aspiring astronauts have signed on for. Mars 1 is to be a mission unto death. It aims to land crews of four in multiple missions to Mars starting in 2024, 2024 in the knowledge that they will not come home. So the study of small group dynamics offers key insights into its perils, which is partly why Mars One will be a reality television show long before it's an actual space mission, to reveal the quirks and characters of the potential interplanetary um, pioneers. Some interesting comments, too. 
<clears throat> there was uh, apparently there are stories of Russian astronauts not speaking for months, and cosmonaut Valentin uh, Lebedev's diary was used to diagnose depression on his 211-day mission aboard Salyut 7. Quote, he says, we don't feel time anymore, he wrote on one particularly dark day. I don't even want to look out the porthole anymore. And, you know, being confined with the same individuals for such a long period of time, millions of miles from Earth, would create psychological and interpersonal stress for the crew members and affect their ability to uh, carry out their missions. They're trying to see what they can can do now to avert these crises. And there's research being done on the use of robot psychologists. I don't know about that, but I guess they might have some value. And a whole bunch of other issues that they are um, discussing. One thing they warn is, uh, and, and Sheldon better listen to this, he says, you don't necessarily want to go to Mars with your best friend because you're going to end up uh, probably arguing with them and fighting with them. Well, just like Earth. But on Earth, of course, you can get away from them and talk to other people and do other things that you're just not going to do. I, I looked at some of the drawings they had of, of, of where these astronauts would be living, and they're not much larger than a jail cell. And um, another interesting, too, is that when these astronauts have their negative experiences in outer space, apparently they're under pressure not to have them, such experiences, said Mr. Bim. And uh, he says if they report them, they're lo less likely to fly on future missions, which creates an incentive to simply parrot positive stories. And now they have a term called uh, a lie-to-fly culture, in which astronauts falsely report their mental state in order to succeed. And uh, this lie-to-fly culture extends beyond astronaut selection into mid-flight reports, Bim said. So there's been talk of designing a robot psychologist to let astronauts speak about mid-flight mid problems anonymously. As myth-busting goes, though, nothing worked better than Lisa Nowak, an astronaut who in 2007 drove from Houston to Orlando wearing space diapers, then attacked and tried to kidnap her romantic rival in an astronaut love triangle. I remember that. And she's one who made it through the psychological screening, Bim said, so it's difficult to predict what will happen. So uh, you can see the, the issues. Um, Personally, the whole idea of this one-way trip to Mars, to me, seems a bit premature and ill-conceived, given the current and proposed technology for such a mission, at least from what I know, and mostly given the prison-like existence, at best, that one could experience getting there. You sure wouldn't want to have a bad case of claustrophobia. I could possibly entertain a minimal Mars mission that was more like the Apollo missions to the moon on a grander scale, of course, but with an objective to return the astronauts to Earth. That, to me, would be an event far more worth celebrating than a one-way ticket to a short-lived existence. I guess you could say, yeah, we did it, but what has really been accomplished if you can't say you can return? You know, I think in the very long term, I think we have to approach space travel in a manner that adapts our environment to us and not us to the environment, even though that environment may be extraterrestrial. By that, I mean that human beings, upon going out into space in a meaningful and long-term way, would have to do so in large, viable communities, on space vehicles large enough to accommodate them, I think, along with providing some form of artificial gravity, sort of like the spinning space station we saw in the movie um, 2001. Um, Long-term, consistent zero gravity and severe isolation are two things that are simply not good for the human condition, even though they can be tolerated for a uh, short term. I think until we overcome those basics, I really don't see any form of long-term or deep space travel by living human beings. Um, 
not robots, of course, uh, as being possible for, for quite, a, quite a while yet. But I can still get excited about the concept of doing it. Now, back to Earth, but on the topic of Pluto again. Is it a planet or is it not? Once again, from the Discovery Channel's Pluto first encounter, here's what the debate is all about. Mike Brown is known for traveling to majestic summits to hunt for planets. And on top of Mauna Kea are many of the best telescopes in the world. And the Subaru telescope is the premier telescope for discovering new things in the outer solar system. We really never knew when we were going to find the big ones versus the small ones versus anything else. So it was, it was totally random. I had no idea the morning that I went in that I was going to find what became Eris. It was a morning like any other morning and suddenly there it is on the screen in front of me and I, I knew we were onto something. He discovered Eris, a planet about the same size as Pluto but further out in the Kuiper Belt. Eris takes 557 years to make a trip around the Sun. Its discovery, and the likelihood of more planets like it, sparked a fiery debate and earned Mike the title Pluto Killer. The discovery of Eris was a couple of weeks before New Horizons launched. Less than 10 minutes, uh, we should see the liftoff of our New Horizons spacecraft toward the planet Pluto. I remember the announcer at the launch says, well, it's the mission to the last unexplored planet. And I said, well, that's not going to be true by the time it gets there. Because you knew as soon as you discovered Eris that either it was going to be a planet or Pluto was not. All of a sudden, the textbook companies are scrambling to take Pluto out of their astronomy sections. So you have all these products that had been in classrooms on collector shelves that put Pluto into a class of objects it no longer was. Rob Perlman knows a lot about space collectibles. He's always searching for that it item, and he's very interested in the Pluto problem. If there's one thing collectors like more than anything else, it's mistakes. The idea of a stamp printed wrong, a coin struck wrong. Now you had all these products that were just mistaken. It was not a planet at all. It was a dwarf planet. Now you had the Pluto going out of business sale. So you would have the before and after, and suddenly a new type of collectible was born. The economic effect? Millions. Toys, books, mobiles, all needed to be changed. Or did they? Icy Little Pluto is still a hot product in the stores. Nine years after its demotion, it's still being included in solar system models, in toys, in puzzles. That's because that's what the public wants. They want Pluto as part of their solar system. A lot of people here would buy into that. What do we want? Equal recognition of dwarf planets! When do we want it? Now! I would like to uh, open this uh, IAU General Assembly. The general assemblies of the International Astronomical Union happen every three years. We have scientific discussions and occasionally there are topics that come up which are a little more interesting, such as what is the definition of a planet. My name is Gerard Van Bell. I was one of the astronomers actually at the vote in Prague in 2006 where we voted on the status of Pluto and other bodies in the solar system. 
astronomers, not planetary scientists, would determine the fate of Pluto. Just 5% of the total membership would actively participate in this historic vote. There was a certain electricity in the air because we knew that whatever came out of that meeting was going to make history. First of all, those are astronomers who mostly study galaxies. Why the heck are they deciding what a planet is, okay? A dwarf planet. I've never been to IEU meeting. I'm not an astrophysicist. I'm a planetary scientist. I don't go and look at their galaxies and say, this is a galaxy, that's not a galaxy. So why are they saying what's a planet and what's not a planet? We originally hoped to be able to define planets more widely, but we found it too difficult to manage appropriate wording. They came up with a definition that was just way too complicated. It was crazy. Not only did it have to have the definition that most of us agreed with, which is that the body had to be massive enough to naturally form almost perfect sphere, but it also had to be massive enough to clear out its neighborhood in space. So when a planet goes around its orbit, does it clear its orbital zone? Does it, does it, does it push everything else out of the way? Right now, I think there's confusion. John? I was watching from half a world away, and I came out very forcefully and said, look, you're really, you're not just debating Pluto, you're debating Eris and all of these other objects. These are small bodies flitting around the solar system. These are not some of the large, grand, important bodies of the solar system. And as much as I would love to be a person who has discovered planets, it just doesn't make sense. Eris should not be a planet. Pluto should not be a planet. None of these should be planets. It will be disastrous for astronomy if we come away from the General Assembly with nothing. We will be regarded as complete idiots. Thank you. It was all very uh, rushed, I think. I would like to call for a vote. Those uh, who are in favor of Resolution 6A. With only a fraction of the Assembly in attendance, a resolution is passed with fatal implications for Pluto. I think the decision is flawed. I certainly do stand by my vote still, which would have basically kept Pluto as a planet. I'm a little sad that the science got lost in the emotional debate, but as, as scientists, we have to take that part away and we have to just look at the solar system as it is, and no one would ever classify Pluto as a planet. Well, we just fundamentally disagree with that definition of what a planet is. We're gonna show them as we fly by, after we get our first really great pictures and we'll say, you see, Pluto really is a planet. You know, the big question that begs asking is why would it be disastrous for astronomy if the Astronomical Union hadn't come up with a decision on is Pluto a planet? Uh, what if they had voted to keep Pluto classified as a planet? Would that have been a disaster too or was the disaster just not having a vote? I'm not sure how they're looking at that. But uh, there's one of the situations that you run into. And another thing is, who decides if the current cl reclassification isn't already a disaster in the making? And why is this distinction so important? I can't really answer a lot of those questions, but I can approach 
the question of how we might be able to decide what a planet is. And, you know, if you're expecting to find any consistent or objective definitions in dictionaries or books in astronomy, you'd be out of luck, as I was, when I compared three different sources. Went to my Funk and Wagnalls, 1974, defines a planet as one of the celestial bodies revolving around the sun and shining only by reflected light. Those within Earth's orbit, Mercury and Venus, are called inferior planets, and those beyond it are the superior planets, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. between Mars and Jupiter are the asteroids or minor planets. So they were calling the asteroids minor planets then. Now, in the, my Webster's New 20th Century Dictionary, published three years later, they explain, of course, that planet originally came from the Latin planeta and Greek planetes, a wanderer, you know, from planan, to wander. Originally, any of the heavenly bodies with apparent motion as distinguished from the fixed stars, including the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. This is not so illogical a grouping given the context and knowledge of the time. All those seven celestial bodies did have one thing in common. They moved relative to the stars behind them. And then, then the dictionary says, Now, any heavenly body that shines by reflected sunlight and revolves around the sun, the major planets in their order, and they give the regular ones and the minor the same things. But uh, out of an astronomy book called The Astronomers, which was a companion to the PBS TV series in 1991, they just call it one of the, a planet is one of the nine largest objects around the sun. That, that's as far as they go, a large object, and they don't have any definition for the moon. So here are the terms I eventually found. You have major planets, minor planets, dwarf planets, moons, satellites, asteroids, comets, uh, largest objects, things like that. But here's what are the planet properties, and this is where I think the problem is. A motion has to be relative to the stars behind them. They are wanderers. They have to reflect light to be seen and not generate the light, though this was not brought up at the meeting. And uh, they have to be round, oval, not ragged or jagged like asteroids and comets. And so far, those three properties describe the object itself regardless of its immediate space environment. But, you know, I found it interesting that things they didn't include, whether the planet was terrestrial or not. Can you land on it? Well, temperature, composition, volcanic activity. And, uh, of course, the new considerations raised was that it must be in orbit around a sun, a round orbit, apparently, not elliptical, and the size must be large enough to clear out its orbital path of space debris. And I'm just wondering, well, what if the debris just recently moved into the celestial neighborhood and the previously categorized planet didn't have enough time to clear it? Does it get demoted? Um, I don't know. But here's the problem as I see it. The problem is that scientists and astronomers are trying to tie the specific identity of a specific celestial body to its relationship with other celestial bodies of every type that might be in their neighborhood. The object in question becomes identified based on the celestial company it keeps, if you know what I mean, and not on its own individual characteristics. It's almost like a form of astronomical collectivism. For example, were it not for its orbit around the Earth, our moon might quite rightly be considered a planet if it were in its own orbit around the sun, not so unlike Mercury. Or if the planet Mercury, all other things being equal, were in orbit around the Earth, would we cease calling it a planet based on its relationship to the Earth, not on characteristics of its own identity? And I even recall an episode of Star Trek Enterprise where the crew encountered a planet that was simply floating in the dead of open and void of empty space far from the orbit of any star. 
And it had every characteristic of being a planet, except that it wasn't married to an orbital ring in some solar system around a star or sun. And there was no debris around it for it to clear a path, so would it be called a planet or not? In that episode of Enterprise, it generated enough of its own internal heat to accommodate life on its surface. But I guess it still might not be considered a planet by the Astronomers' Union. And it was always night, of course, because there was no sun around. So other than putting some kind of adjective on such a body, like rogue planet or something like that, what would the classification be? I still call it a planet, especially in light of the things that it is not. It is not a star, an asteroid, etc., etc. So... I think really a part of the problem is we have to make the language relative to our use. I have no problem with Pluto being called a dwarf planet. It's still a planet. I have a bigger problem really with planets like Saturn and Jupiter and Uranus and Neptune and perhaps even Venus being called planets because relative to humanity and humankind, these are not terrestrial in nature, Venus possibly being an exception. But we can't land on them and walk around any more than we could land on the sun. They're completely gas and vapor and seem to me to be more closely related to the property, you know, uh, to the sun than the planets like Mercury, Earth, Mars, and now Pluto. I'd even toss the moon in as a more eligible planet than some of the gas giants. I'd rather categorize many of the moons of, of the gas giants as planets since many of them display the very characteristics that we can find on Earth and Mars. And I know that my own personal sense of orientation to the immediate solar system changed uh, dramatically when I first realized that the real action for human beings in our solar system was not going to be on these giant planets, but on their moons, many of which would qualify to be planets if, if planets if they were in their own orbits around the sun. So are we trying to be strictly scientific in our definitions or relevant or both? You know, earlier we heard astronomer Mike Brown argue these are small bodies flitting around the solar system. They are not some of the large, grand, important bodies to which I have to ask, important to whom, or towards what purpose or objective? Large, grand, and important are not very scientific or objective ways to categorize things. But who says our categorization can't be a bit more subjective, geared to what human beings would actually consider important? It doesn't make sense that Aries should not be a planet, Pluto should not be a planet, he says. Well, given what we've just discovered about Pluto over the past week or so, we could even call for yet another category of planet based on the complexities and relationships of the moons that surround it. And its very unique orbit distinguishes it not only from the orbits of the other eight recognized planets, but from the orbit of Aries. So last week, Pluto became important. We now know that human beings could actually be able to land there, if, if should they ever want to, and that makes, a lot, makes it a lot more relevant to us today. And, you know, as one of the astronomers earlier noted, dwarf or not, Pluto is still a planet. And that's what I'll continue calling it until someone can emphatically demonstrate why that would be the wrong thing to do. Until then, feeling comfortable about calling Pluto a planet is just right. So that's it for today. Check us, check us out again next week when we'll return on our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Raj? <laughs> Have you seen Howard? I think he's eating lunch uh, Sheldon, I wanted to meet Neil deGrasse Tyson From the Hayden Planetarium in New York I'm quite familiar with Dr. Tyson He's responsible for the demotion of Pluto From planetary status I liked Pluto <laughs> Ergo, I do not like you <laughs>
But I actually didn't demote Pluto. That was a vote of the International Astronomical Union. If ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> Think about that, Dr. Tyson. Is that the guy you were telling me about? Oh, yeah. 